All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Wally. If I have not met you, I'm teaching pastor here. Who's not teaching this morning? Uh, which is a lovely uh, treat in the fact that uh, uh, last time Lisa Stonehouse was with us, I wasn't. So part of it was trying to figure out how to schedule her while I'm here so I don't miss out. Uh, that's no fun. A lot of times we have the most brilliant, beautiful people with us teaching, and, and I'm gone, and I don't want to miss that. Um, but we are starting a new series, mini-series, if you will, this morning. If you have not been with us, or if you have, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we've spent all of this year, and we will finish this year, going through the Gospel of Matthew. But we break them down into themes. There are little themes within Matthew, and this next one all revolves around authority and power. And so uh, that is going to be uh, all sorts of fun over the next uh, few weeks as we kind of dig into this. But this morning, uh, the discipleship pastor from Harbor Life uh, is with us. So I would love it if you would welcome uh, our friend Lisa Stonehouse. And I'd be, oh, there we go. She was right. Um, it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, every time I come here, I meet someone new. I got to meet Sarah and have a lovely conversation. And Jordan, I don't know where he went. There he is. Okay, to actually meet a person who puts their months in a favorite order, I do that too. October is my first favorite though, but I'm excited. And tomato soup, I don't know, I like that guy. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it is a joy to be here with you and um, just to worship and learn about God and learn about who you are as a community and what you're doing in Walker. Um, it's just a gift. So I wondered if you would pray with me. God, we ask um, that you open our hearts to your voice, to your prompting. Lord, to um, convict us where we need conviction um, and to encourage our hearts where we need encouragement. God, I just pray that you rid me of myself um, and just to speak your word, God, that is, that is true. We love you. Amen. So as Wally said, if you've been around here for any amount of time, we've been working through the book of Matthew. And I was really, really excited about that. Um, at the beginning of the year when they, when they said that's what we were going to do because I feel like when you go through passages, sometimes there's, there's things that you miss. And with Matthew, it's like we're just living here. We're living in the world of Jesus and his words and who he was. And um, it just in a new way has made him come alive. So the last nine months, it has taken to work through the first 20 chapters of Matthew. But we're really going to slow down. And in the next um, about three that's left of this year, which is crazy, um, we're going to focus on the last week of Jesus's life. Um, so it's a much slower pace, and we're really going to delve in to what that week was like. Um, before his crucifixion and his resurrection. So this week begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And at the same time, the Roman governor of that time, Pilate, was also entering Jerusalem on a war horse. 
So for the next six weeks, we are gonna examine what it looks like when authority and power come into collision at the cross of Jesus. Now the story that I'm gonna tell today pretty much gets preached once a year on Palm Sunday. But it's a great grasp to see what Jesus is doing in the story. And when you really spend time, it changes how you interact with it, who the disciples were and the other people in it, how they reacted, including Jesus. I often ask myself, what's my heart behind doing this? What is the message I want to consistently weave through the words that I say on a Sunday? The weave through my life. Outside, I, my Harbor Life knows I'm the weeper over there, but I get teary on a regular basis talking about there is nothing we can do to make Jesus love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. So outside of that, what I want, my heart is, is that he is worth trusting. I want to bring Jesus and the truths of the Bible to life so that you get to know him better, that you want to be with him, that you spend time with him getting to know his heart, that you need him for our growth and our change. And that yes and absolutely, Jesus was God is God, but that he was a person too. In John, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word is with a capital W. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, his home with us. Flesh, just like us. Pinch your arm. Like Jesus was as much of a person as we are. And I think sometimes, if we're honest, that we wrestle with that. Like how can you be God and a person? And sometimes I wonder if we're honest, if we even have trouble believing that. I know I, I can struggle with that sometimes. I look at my own humanity and I wonder, how could he be like me? But in Hebrews we read, since the children, which is us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity. He shares in our humanity. He felt what we felt. He had emotions like we do, thoughts and feelings like we do. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tempted. Jesus got angry. He felt excited about stuff. He had a job. He had a family, and they were not a perfect one. He went to places to be alone. He had friends. He had people that he struggled with. He dreaded things. He hoped for things. He sat around campfires. He thought about the future. And the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. So today, with Palm Sunday, we are also going to talk about the two recorded times in the Bible that Jesus wept. 
And it might seem kind of funny that we're doing that on a day where we're going to talk about palm branches and shouting Hosanna, but stay with me. Because both the books of John and Luke mentioned that Jesus wept. Right after John tells the story, it tells the story of Palm Sunday. And right, right before in John, he tells the story, and then right after in Luke. So it's nestled right between the two times that Jesus wept. And I found that pretty captivating. So I thought we would start there. So we're going to begin this morning in John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So this passage emphasizes how much love Jesus had for this family. There was a deep friendship and a depth of relationship between them, which resulted in loving one another. Like picture one of your favorite families that you love spending time with. That's what, that's what Mary and Martha and Lazarus were to Jesus. He loved this family. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days, which that could be a whole sermon in itself. But then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother, just like we do today to people that we love, right? Bring them food and spend time with them. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. I picture Martha running down this path to Jesus, angry at him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into this world. This is a really human exchange, isn't it, between Jesus and Martha? Like, Martha was mad at him, and I kind of don't blame her, right? She knew Jesus could have done something, and she didn't feel like he showed up in time. She was confused. Jesus, why didn't you come when I needed you? You could have done something. But Jesus looks her in the eye and he says, Martha, do you trust me? So after Jesus and Martha had this conversation, Martha had said this. She went back and she called her sister Mary aside. 
The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So we have a little side note here. There's two really different temperaments, two really different personalities here, two very different ways of approaching Jesus. Martha was kind of mad at him, and Mary just fell at his feet, crumpled in her pain. Martha was fierce and more angry. Mary just crumpled and broken. But Jesus responds to them the same, with tenderness and love. Jesus responds to our own different temperaments, our own different personalities, our own different ways of approaching him with that same tenderness and love. We can come as we are, bringing all of our stuff, all of our feelings to him. We don't have to hide anything from him. We don't have to polish our feelings or ourselves to make us look a little better in front of him. The raw of who we are is who Jesus meets. And that's how he showed up to Mary and Martha. Mary had those same feelings too. Jesus, you could have done something. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. Here is Jesus, God wrapped in flesh, knowing what he's about to do. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he knows that very soon he's going to show that he is the resurrection and the life weeping. Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. He's greatly troubled. Death is so, so painful. There's hugging and there's whispers and there's questions and there's weeping. And as they wept, Jesus wept with them. He experienced their emotions, their pain, their heaviness, their sorrow, with them. We have a Savior who has come to us in the very flesh that we have, who knows and understands what it means to be pain-filled, what it means to weep. He is able to identify and empathize with us in our hurt. He wept at the grave of someone he loved, like so many of us have. The way that Jesus enters this emotionally charged situation is so, so beautiful. In the middle of this situation, Jesus stood with them and he wept. He paused and he cried. He enters in our pain, our hurt, because he loves us, because he understands. He is tender to our humanity because he is human too. The word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. It is believed that there were just a few days between this story of Lazarus and the triumphal entry. There was unrest and there was turmoil in the land. From the chief priest towards Jesus, from the Romans toward the Jews, from the Jews towards the Romans. And this next story, when placed in its historical, social, and political context, it's absolutely charged with electricity. I knew some of it, but I loved going deeper studying this. And I'll do my best explaining some of the things I've learned, many of them from our friend Tim over at South Harbor. So we'll got, no, now we'll go to Matthew, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem. So I have a map of that. So we'll pause here because this detail, as they approach Jerusalem, sets the stage for everything that's coming. So the first question we have to ask ourselves any time a place is mentioned is why? Why is this place mentioned? Why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem, right? He's not from Jerusalem. We learned that he's from Capernaum, which is way up on the top, which is about 90 miles away. And these miles are not easy miles. They're hard through the desert, over mountains, by foot. So why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem? The answer is Jesus is a Jew. So on this particular Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, kicked off what would be a really big week for the Jewish people. Because on Thursday night, they would celebrate perhaps the biggest Jewish holiday, Passover. Passover was the yearly celebration of an event that happened approximately 2,000 years before Jesus. It was the moment when God through a man named Moses, set the Israelite people free from their slavery in Egypt. And even though Moses played a central role, there was no doubt in any of their minds that it was God who set them free. The Egyptians were the largest military superpower of that day. They had sophisticated weapons. They built the pyramids. And so, central into the, of the celebration of Passover was this belief that through God, anything is possible. With God, no matter how big and bad the enemy looks, there will be justice. And so, every year, if you were Jewish, you would leave your home, travel to the capital city of Jerusalem to celebrate and remember Passover. Because of Passover, there was a huge gathering of people in the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people were packed into the city, which was normally about 40,000 people. And they were all there to remember a time in their past when God had set them free. But there was another reason the Jewish people would gather for Passover. Passover is described in the Bible as a Jewish festival. The word festival is the Jewish word mikra, and it means to rehearse, to practice. They believed that the festivals weren't just a part of remembering something that happened in the past. They were a rehearsal of something that would happen in the future. 
And that is an important detail to remember. Because at the time of Jesus, the Egyptians were no longer the problem. Because now there was a new global military superpower on the scene, the Roman Empire. And those mighty Romans made the Egyptians almost look weak. These Romans were larger and stronger and more brutal than the Egyptians could have even imagined. These are the same Romans who took a torture device that was being used by the barbarians. They tweaked it so the pain would last longer and they called it the cross. The historical record from this time in history is just one account after another of Romans crucifying an entire city for people trying to rebel against them. The Romans were vicious. There's even accounts of them lining the streets with crosses so that every time you left your house, if you were one of the few who survived, you would have to walk by your family or your neighbors hanging on crosses. That is unimaginable. That message could not have been clearer. Don't mess with Rome. Passover was about worshiping and remembering, but it was also about a protest. This world is not how it should be. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes my soul groans that this world is not how it should be. But it's as if the Jews were saying, God, we believe you can defeat them. You can set us free, just like you did 2,000 years ago from the Egyptians. And so, every year, if you were Jewish, you would head down to the Passover festival to remember and to rehearse. And every year, you would pray, you would sing songs, you would tell stories about what happened then and how God raised up a man named Moses. And then, as we've learned through Matthew, he goes back to Moses all the time. They waited for a new Moses who would lead that next charge to freedom. The prophets referred to this new Moses figure as the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who is going to save them and heal it all. And Jesus, the story begins, is headed into Jerusalem for Passover. The Messiah is coming. Do you get a sense of the electricity in the air? Is this the year? Now, at the same time all of this is happening, there's someone else who's heading into Jerusalem. His name was Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. Which raises a question. Why is Pilate in Jerusalem? He's not there to celebrate the Passover because he's not Jewish. Jerusalem is not where he lives. Pilate lived in an incredible mansion. We have a couple pictures of what it looked like. In, um, off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in a city called Caesarea, which, I mean, who would want to leave that? That's like a vacation destination right there, isn't it? So this is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. So this is beautiful. Why is Pilate not home? Why is he not basking in the sun there? Why is he in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is, is Pilate's job is working for Rome. He was the Roman governor. 
And Roman governors had two jobs. Number one, collect taxes for Rome. And the most important, which is number two, keep the peace. So, do you see Pilate's problem? If your entire job is to maintain order, and now the streets of the city are literally packed with people singing songs and drinking wine and telling stories about how God took down their enemies, kind of understand why Pilate would want to be in the center of this thing. What if they celebrate too loudly? What if they drink too much wine? What if they start saying things like, I think we can take them. Look around, we've got this. What if the people rebel? And so, every year during the Passover celebration, as the Jewish people were marching into Jerusalem, Pilate would stage his own march into the city to keep the peace. And hopefully, intimidate the Jews just enough to remember who was in charge. Now, Pilate's march, that was a sight to see. Some historians say that Pilate would take as many as six legions of soldiers. What is a legion? A legion is 6,000 men. Picture your town that you live in. I live in Granville, so I'm picturing Chicago Drive and Wilson, like that, that intersection. Can you imagine 36,000 Roman soldiers marching through your city, down the streets of your town, down your neighborhood? That is a spectacle. That is scary. And it's Pilate's way of saying, don't even think about it. We will crush you. And then leading this army on a great horse was Pilate. There's a picture of like what he could have looked like on that. Can you picture this? 36,000 soldiers. The sun reflecting off the metal of their armor. The steady sound of the soldiers marching together in rhythm. This whole thing was about intimidation. So back to verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. So remember, Pilate is marching in from Caesarea, which is to the west of Jerusalem. Jesus, we're told, is coming into the city from Bethpage and Bethany, which are from the east. Pilate from the west. Jesus from the east. Luke also tells us that Jesus is on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And here is a picture of that right here of what Jesus would have seen. So that big golden dome in the background is called the Dome of the Rock. Um, and it's now an Islamic holy site. But it stands exactly where the temple would have been in Jesus' day. So Jesus from, this, from the hill called the Mount of Olives could see the temple. And I wonder if maybe Jesus could see Pilate and his soldiers. They weren't that far away. If there were 36,000 of them, could Jesus see the sun reflecting off their armor? Could he hear that metal clanging? Could he see the dust cloud rising? Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east. And the crowds, as Jesus marches into the city, are waving palm branches. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us this. 
And notice how John describes the same moment. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jerusalem is in the desert. Sure, there are some palm trees, but the more I've learned, you kind of have to go out of your way to find them. But it's not just that the people went out of their way to find the palm branches. They're waving them. Have you ever thought that that's a little weird? It would be a little bit like if a president was driving down your street and you wanted to show patriotism, right? Picture the 4th of July. My guess isn't you're not going to first think, oh, I'm going to go find a tree branch and wave it, right? That would be pretty weird. What would we wave? A flag or a patriotic sign? When I was in high school, I was able to go to Lansing when President George Bush came into town for the debates with Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. I had a high ponytail with a hot pink scrunchie, crimped hair, it was great. Um, but on our way, we went to the airport in Grand Rapids and saw Air Force One land and saw President Bush come down. And we were going crazy. We all had those little American flags and tattoos on our cheeks. Um, there was so much excitement in the air. Well, it turns out that that's exactly what these people were doing when they waved the palm branch. The palm branch was for these people a sign a flag of sorts, a political symbol. Very simply, in the Greek Empire, the one just before the Roman Empire, some terrible things were done to the Jews there too. And in the middle of all of that, a Jewish family known as the Maccabees rose up and said, enough, we have had enough. And so, the Jewish people at the Maccabees' command staged a full-on revolt against the Greeks, and they won. It's a victory that's still celebrated to this day, known as the Festival of Hanukkah. Now, I know I'm hurrying through this history, but I'm telling you all of it briefly to tell you where that palm branch comes in. There's another festival that the Jewish people celebrate. I mean, these people are great. Festival after festival, we totally have it wrong here. We're so boring. <laughs> so this festival is called Sukkot. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep, okay. Central to the festival of Sukkot were two things, palm branches and the word Hosanna. Sukkot is a festival in which the people would plead with God to bring them rain. And they would wave palm branches, and thousands of palm branches, when you wave them, kind of sound like rain. And so, in a way to celebrate Sukkot, the people would wave palm branches, and they would cry out, Hoshana, Hosanna. God save us, send us rain. They did this every year. But now the Jewish people again were no longer free. This time it wasn't the Egyptians or the Greeks, it was the Romans. And as we talked about, those brutal Romans were worse. And so a Jewish resistant movement began to bubble up in the years leading up to Jesus. 
And these people called themselves the Zealots. Their mantra, do whatever it takes. Their war cry, Hosanna. Their flag, the palm branch. This whole story is dripping with revolution. Hamilton and the American Revolution, Les Mis and the French Revolution. Can you hear the people sing? So with all of this in mind, let's go back to our story. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So Jesus says, if somebody says to you, hey, that guy is stealing my donkey, just say, the Lord needs it. Now, maybe I've watched a few too many movies, but you know what I expect Jesus to do here? I expect him to get on a horse and ride into Jerusalem William Wallace style, right? Hair flowing, eyes blazing, face painted. He is ready to do this. But what does he say instead? Hey guys, you want to grab me a donkey? Donkeys aren't exactly the most intimidating animals, are they? Like they're slow, they're stubborn, they're kind of cute. We have a donkey. I mean, they're like, someday in Palm Sunday at Harbor Life, I'm going to have a donkey. I got to figure out how to do that. So if anybody has a donkey connection next, next Easter, let me know. <laughs> But can you imagine trotting, or I don't even know what donkeys do. They just feel like they just kind of stand there, right? But to go into battle on one of those things, how fast can they even go? I mean, if William Rawlist came riding in on one of those, that would have been the end of him. But the donkey was actually, it became a Jewish symbol for peace. Because the only time a donkey would be ridden in war was if you were surrendering. So what do you think those crowds of people were thinking? Is Jesus giving up? So let's see, in verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and they colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Did you catch what the crowds are saying? He's not giving up. Yes, the donkey is a symbol for peace, but it's not because Jesus is giving up. It is because God is about to have the victory. So where did they get this idea? Well, in his account, Matthew tells us what the prophet Isaiah said was going to happen. Zechariah, what the prophet Zechariah said. He talked about the king coming in on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the crowd, because they were Jewish people and they knew the Bible, they knew that prophecy. Why do they wave palm branches? Because in their mind, that's the way you get peace. You fight back. Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east. Now again, put yourself in the story. The great messianic king of Israel is entering the city, not on a noble horse as a mighty conqueror, but on a lowly donkey. This road that Jesus took into Jerusalem began at the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. And as he rode the donkey down that dusty road, crowds of people began to eagerly shout and gather, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Waving palm branches, rejoicing with victory and triumph, anticipation, joy, excitement. This is happening. What a rousing, mighty, royal welcome given by this multitude of people with loud shouts and vigorous waving of palm branches. But then, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us this. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace? So instead of reveling in this overpowering throng of rejoicing all around him, Jesus did something pretty unexpected. As he gazed at the delighted faces of all the people standing there, with the whole city of Jerusalem with its familiar structures in the background, he wept. Tears in the middle of this celebration? Suddenly, this scene is offering a different flavor. We now have Jesus displaying vulnerable tears running down his cheeks into his beard. The word here in Greek used for wept is klio, which, which means to weep aloud, expressing uncontainable audible grief, a loud, deep, guttural sobbing. Jesus literally cried his heart out. Knowing that throughout time, people are people, and tears can sometimes make things feel uncomfortable, I imagine the crowd quickly dispersing. People quietly gathering their palm branches, their children, their bags, hustling home, whispering to each other, what is wrong with him? Why on earth is he crying? And are you wondering why Jesus wept too? He was so overcome with sorrow and grief 
and he openly expressed the depth of his emotional lamentation over the city of the people that do not understand and respond to the true meaning of rescue and freedom, the true meaning of a savior, that he was standing right in front of them as their peace, and they missed it. This prayed, the one opposite of Pilate's military prayed, is one of humble declarations that a very different king had arrived. That Jesus is a king who longs to save them. He longs to be the deep, true, lasting source of their peace. To save them. And they missed it. And I think, too, we often miss it. This is why Jesus was weeping for the people as he rode that donkey that first Palm Sunday. He knew they didn't understand his role as the true king, the one that would bring shalom, a deep peace, a true rest for their souls. Jesus didn't come to conquer kingdoms and nations. He came to transform our hearts and our minds. He came to bring us a true peace, a lasting peace, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that no matter what junk is swirling around in your life, you can still have peace in the trauma or the pain or the confusion. He came to be our savior, to bring us peace and to save us from our sins. And Jesus wept because they didn't get it. Because we don't get it. We so often don't recognize or acknowledge our need of a savior. We try to fix things. We try to make things right. We try to grip the illusion of control so tightly. We look for other things to satisfy that peace other things to save us. It takes so much of us, for us, to come to the end of ourselves. Then we finally think, I guess I'll pray about it. I guess I'll try the Jesus way here. I guess I'll do it this way. Why does it take us so long to cry out to him, Lord, save us? Why does it take so long for us to go to him for true saving and for true peace and true rescue for our souls? The only source of peace for rest for us, for that deep within our soul contentedness is Jesus. He came, he came to bring us life and life abundantly and a huge part of that abundant life is his saving grace. And with all of that saving grace, he brings peace. He's the only source of true peace. He came to be the Lord of our hearts and our minds and our wills. And he came so we don't have to do it alone. That we don't need to control. That we don't need to find or look for other sources of peace. 
Jesus said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Peace here in Greek is irene, meaning peace, quietness, rest, wholeness. When all essential parts are joined together, Jesus is our essential part to make us whole. Irene is God's gift of wholeness. If only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, what would bring you God's gift of wholeness. In him, we find this perfect gift of wholeness, a lasting peace, a savior who understands the human part of Jesus cries with us in our pain and our sorrows like he did with Mary and Martha, with us, is the same Jesus who cries for us, for us to understand what it means to follow him into true, deep peace, for a peace that passes understanding. In Ephesians we read, for he himself is our peace. He weeps with us because he's human. And he weeps for us because he's God. And in the middle of that, he is inviting us to trust him as the king of our hearts, that we need a savior to save us from our sins and to give us deep soul satisfying peace. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for weeping with us and for loving us enough to weep for us, that you are calling us and inviting us and asking us to take that next step, to see you standing before us as the only source of true peace. Lord, I pray that we surrender our desires for control or to fix things. Lord, that we just surrender ourselves to you and rest in that everlasting gift of peace that you have for us. Thank you for flipping the world upside down, for showing us a way that is different from the world. Thank you for your authority and your power and your tenderness over our life. In your precious name, amen.